Right now we're going through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you could turn there with me. 1 Samuel. Uh, we're in chapter 5, and we're actually going to go all the way to chapter 7. Okay, so 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 7, verse 2. I know it's kind of long, um, but it's really all one section. Um, and if you know what we're doing, we're actually going through all of Samuel, right? In the original Hebrew, Samuel was just one book, first and second. But when they translated it into Greek, it didn't fit onto one scroll, so they split it in half. And that's why we have First and Second Samuel in our English Bibles today. So we're kind of going to follow the Greek model, I guess you could say. So the first half, First Samuel, we're going to call it after God's own heart. That's that's kind of the the series title, and that's the focus of this first half of the series. And then the next half, Second Samuel, which will be sometime next year, Lord willing, at the soonest. Um, when we go through Second Samuel, it'll be a slightly different theme, and we'll kind of reset and gain our bearings. But anyway, First Samuel, after God's own heart, I'm going to read uh, the scripture and then we'll pray. Um, and again, it's a lot of text to get through, um, but this is a very important passage uh, or series of passages. And really the topic that this is about is super important for us today. The problem really of the presence of God, why that is a problem. Okay, so hopefully you're there. Let me read and then we'll pray. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord and... The head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, 
five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there, was never, there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its sides, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Verse 10. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck down some of the men of Beth, Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of God. Pretty self-explanatory, so I think we don't even need to preach about these golden tumors and mice. No, I'm just kidding. Let me pray. Let me pray for our blessing, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we come before you this afternoon. We're thankful for your grace to us that we could meet here, that we have a a place, God, to, to gather and to hear your word, that we have your word to learn from. God, I'm thankful for every person that you have brought to worship you today. But God, we know that as we come before you this afternoon, we recognize that you are the holy God of the universe, that you are the almighty Lord of heaven and earth. 
that we don't deserve an audience with you. We recognize, God, that when we sing of your love, when we talk about your grace, when we remember your mercy, that these are the most amazing things we could ever talk about. How could you, the God who dwells in inapproachable light, beckon us to draw near? So God, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of the heaviness of what we're talking about. I pray also, God, that you would thrill our hearts, that we wouldn't take it lightly, God, that you have set your heart on us, sinners. God, we need you during this time. We are hard-hearted. We are slow-minded. We don't understand so often. We take you for granted. We ask for your forgiveness about that, and we ask for your help. God, be gracious to us. Help us to see who you really are, that we might worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, a while back, my daughter was invited to a birthday party, and uh, it was just a few kids, and uh, our families were invited to you because our kids are young. Um, and I got to talking with some of the dads there. Uh, there are a few dads. Uh, and I was actually talking to one of my um, good friends. I've known him for a long time. And remember, kid's birthday party. But he started talking to us about how he's been reading a lot about serial killers. Um, and I'm not going to get too deep into it because there are kids here in this room. But obviously, uh, I mean, that was a kid's birthday party. I don't know what that guy was thinking. But he's going on and on about serial killers and telling us about these true crimes. Uh, if you're worried, at least the kids were running around and playing in a different room. It's just the dads, okay? He's... He's regaling us with these stories. Um, but he was telling us about um, the Golden State Killer. He's like, oh, you're from California. Let me tell you about this. So the Golden State Killer was just recently caught after being searched for for decades. Right? Some of you guys know about this. It was on the news, all of that. Now, I'm not going to tell you about him. Okay, I'm not going to. You can look that up on your own time. Uh, we don't have time for that. But besides his twisted crimes and, you know, all that stuff that would be in movies and are going to be in documentaries later, the thing that he said that stood out to me was that everyone who knew him after he was caught was surprised. Because, you know, sometimes some people, they give you the serial killer vibe a little bit, and you don't know if they are, but if they do kill someone, you're like, I knew it, right? I always thought that guy was weird. But the Golden State Killer, everyone who knew him, basically without exception, this is what the dad told me, so he could be inaccurate, but this is what he told me. He said everyone who knew him was shocked because he was a great guy. In fact, one thing that this dad told me that really stood out to me was his own nephew was shocked, who had kind of grown up with a family. He said, I loved my uncle so much, I had often wished as a kid that he could switch places with my dad. And I wanted my uncle to be my dad because I liked him so much more than my real dad. Little did I know that he was a serial killer. These people had no idea that they were in the presence of someone so dangerous all these years. Now, let's switch gears for a second. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to have been around Jesus when he was walking this earth, when he was uh, starting his earthly ministry, when he was seeable? when you could reach out and touch his garment, to have talked with him, to have been his friend, to have known him, to have been his cousin. And let me ask you, do you think any part of you 
in this kind of mental game we're playing? Do you think any part of you, can you imagine any part of you being scared of this guy? And you say, Jesse, are you comparing Jesus to a serial killer? Come on, this is our first time in this building. I'm not, okay? Okay, I'm not, just for the record. But I am comparing the situation in one specific way. See, however you would answer that question, understand that most of the time, most people who encountered Jesus, who talked with him, who saw him do things, weren't scared at all. They weren't afraid. They confronted him. People would argue with him. People would reach out and try to hold him. They didn't even think to be scared. But sometimes, and only sometimes, certain people, strangely enough, did get scared. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you see that sometimes people realize, and you can almost see it in the text, you can see their faces, there's this realization that they're in the presence of somebody who is actually really quite dangerous. Luke 7, a widow lost her son. You might remember this story. There's a funeral procession. Jesus sees it, and filled with compassion, he approaches, and he finds out that the widow has lost her son, and the son is being carried on this stretcher. And he says to the woman, don't be, don't cry anymore, do not weep. And then he says to the son, who's dead, arise. And the son just sits up and starts talking. And you think everyone would be pumped and super happy, but just think about it for a second. When this dead guy who you knew was dead just starts, sits up, just sits up and starts talking, it says that people were seized with fear. It's almost like fear just grabbed them by the neck. People were terrified by what had just happened. Or what about Mark chapter 5? Jesus commanded a legion of demons to flee out of this one guy. Remember this legion. And the demons come out, long story short, they go into these pigs. The pigs run down the bank into the water and drown themselves. It's really crazy and weird. And then the people in the surrounding area, they, they approach and they see this guy who has been tormented by these demons, who has been running amok, and he's in his right mind, he's at peace, and they see Jesus and they realize the power of this guy the danger of this guy, that he could command the demons. And it says, quote-unquote, in Mark chapter 5, that they were afraid and they begged Jesus to leave. Now, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with our text in 1 Samuel? Right? Again, you're probably, probably thinking, okay, like we don't got a lot of time here. Right? Aren't we doing communion today, too? And you're right. Okay, I do tend to speak really long. Uh, James told me specifically today, he said, you got to go shorter. And I said, you're not my boss, right? I only have one Jesus. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. You're right, James. You're right. So I'm going to try to go faster. What does this have to do with 1 Samuel? Well, what did we talk about last time? Okay, let's set the scene here a little bit. Remember what just happened. The Philistines, Israel's dangerous and powerful enemy, had defeated the Israelites not once, but twice. You remember this? Now, what was notable about the second defeat was that the Israelites the second time, had brought out the big guns, right? Or the big guns, singular. They had brought the Ark of the Covenant out as their secret weapon to defeat the Philistines, who were more advanced, who were stronger. They brought out the Ark, which was a four by two and a half by two and a half-ish foot golden box, symbolized the presence of God. They knew that it was powerful. They knew their God was powerful. They knew that they had the Ark in front of them when they marched around Jericho and the walls fell down. I mean, the ark was what represented what made them special. They were the people that the God who made everything 
chose to call by his name. So the thinking was, if God were for them, who could be against them? So they bring out the ark. They're super confident. They're pumped up. But God wasn't going to be used as a good luck charm in battle. And you guys remember what I said. If God is for you, but God wasn't for them. 30,000 Israelites are killed. The whole army is routed. And the ark of God is taken. See, the flip side of that statement is true. If God is for you, who can be against you? The flip side is, if God isn't for you, or if God is against you, then it doesn't matter who is for you. You're done. The Israelites were done. So now we pick up where we left off. It was a bit of a cliffhanger. If you actually think about what was going on right there, Israel was at a loss. They had no hope. Okay, this was their last chance. They're going to bring out the ark, and this is their desperate attempt to defeat the Philistines. The ark is gone now. 30,000 warriors are dead, plus the 4,000 or so that died before. Eli, the high priest and the judge of Israel, is dead. The glory has departed from Israel. So we pick up right where we left off. And we see what happens when the ark, remember the symbol of the presence of God, is taken. In fact, we follow it. And we see what happens when people don't realize that they are in the presence of something dangerous. So let's get into it. Okay, let's get into it. Three headings today. We're going to break down this text in three parts as we do. Okay, first the power, the presence, and then the problem. First the power. The power. Which helps us understand what we mean when we say that God is God. God is God. Verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Okay, so right off, Right off the bat, the camera moves away from Israel, okay, and follows the ark deep into Philistine territory to the city of Ashdod. Now, okay, I don't want to bore you too much, but I want to give you a sense of what the Philistines were like, what their country was like. The Philistine country was basically made up of these five major cities, okay? The scholars today call it the Philistine Pentopolis, you know, five, Pentagon, Pentopolis. And each of these cities kind of had an area around them of smaller towns that they kind of watched over. And each of these cities was ruled by one Philistine lord, kind of like a mini king. And together, they would make decisions. We see this later on in the text. We read it. The five lords kind of ruled as a ruling group over all of the Philistines. So they take the ark to Ashdod, one of the main cities. And the reason why they take it to Ashdod of all the cities is because the temple of Dagon is there. The Philistines have the ark. And from a certain pagan perspective, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is just the latest prisoner of war. Right? His ark is a spoil. I mean, the Philistines were used to victory, so they take the ark to the temple of their main god, Dagon. Now, if you think about it, right, in those days, Yahweh, the God of Israel, must have seemed like a very strange god. On the one hand, you hear about how powerful he is, how he utterly dominated and wrecked the Egyptians, but then you fight him, and it seems like nothing happened. You capture him, but it's just a box, right? Everyone else, they had like an image. You have no idea what Yahweh looks like, but they try to put Yahweh into their own kind of pagan lens, and they're like, well, I guess this is Yahweh. So they take the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, into their temple. Now, Dagon, we don't know a ton about him, but he was the head of the Philistine pantheon. 
right? You know some of these ancient cultures, right? Like the Greeks, probably the most famous. They had a pantheon, a bunch of different gods. Zeus was the head. Dagon is like the Zeus of the Philistine pantheon, their most powerful god. And they take the ark into the temple and they just leave it in there. Now, why do you think that they, why do you think they do this? Why would they bring the ark into the temple? I mean, part of it, you can probably guess pretty easily, is that they won. Right? The Israelites lost. That means that they are stronger than the Israelites. That means that their God, obviously, clearly, must be stronger than Yahweh, Israel's God. I mean, if they both had spiritual backing in this war, the proof was in the pudding. Whoever won had the stronger God. So they bring, they bring Yahweh's ark as a defeated tribute. But if you notice verse 2, it's more than that. They set it up, the ark, they set it up beside Dagon. Okay, so what's going on isn't just an offering, but it's an inclusion. The Philistines were polytheists. They believed in many gods. And sure, Yahweh might have lost, but he's still the God who did something in Egypt. So why not add him to their gods? It's really quite strange. We, we don't think this way today. But they're like, might as well just worship him too, just as a lesser God beneath Dagon. But then we read the story. The next day, all right, everything's great. They just won this huge battle. The next day, they show up at the temple for early morning prayer, whatever they're doing, and Dagon has fallen over. Okay, he fell over, and not only did he just fall to the side, but he has fallen down in a way where he's repositioned himself, bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. So they're like, that's weird. And they pick him up and put him back in his place because, you know, like a stone statue is not going to pick up itself, Right? The next day, they wake up, and they go to the temple again, and not only has Dagon fallen face down before the ark again, his head and his hands have been severed from his body. Now, you don't have to know too much about ancient Near Eastern practices to know that this is a bad look for Dagon. Okay, this is bad for the Philistines. But in those days, battle was brutal. Okay, When you defeated another army, you wanted to show how dominant you were. And so we read about different things that happened. In fact, later on in this book, when Saul is killed, the Philistines cut off his head and they take it. I read a story about uh, a myth about an ancient warrior goddess, and when she defeated her enemy, she would cut off their hands and tie it to her armor. And you can see these like hand skeletons to show how strong you were. They couldn't test me. So what's going on here is brutal, but that's the point. It was a show of utter domination. That's not supposed to happen. We just beat Yahweh, we thought. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? I think I heard this story when I was young, and I remember going like, yeah, that's right. That's our God, right? That's America's God. We defeated Dagon. I mean, what are we supposed to learn, though, that Dagon isn't as strong as Israel's God, so maybe don't worship Dagon anymore? I mean, here's the thing, okay? Let's be real. How many of you came to Christianity out of Dagon worship? Just one? Okay, I see you in the back. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, how many of us this week were tempted to worship Dagon? Can you imagine that? It's like men's accountability group. And it's like, yeah, this week I kind of struggle with lust. And the other guy's like, oh my gosh, you know my struggle, guys. But I worship Dagon again. Right? Like I gave him an offering. I cut off a hand and I gave it to him. I mean, no one says that. I mean, if someone said that, I'd be like, oh, you've been studying First Samuel, I see. Very nice. No one here is tempted by Dagon. No one here believes in Dagon. No one here even knows really what Dagon was about. Even scholars today don't really know. There's some guesses from what we've seen in archaeology. 
Um, like we know that Dagon was Baal's father in the stories, and we know Baal a lot better. We know that Dagon was the head god. We know that Dagon was actually a god that the Philistines adopted when they moved, when they invaded this area. And we also know that Dagon was maybe the grain god or like the god of the harvest. That's why like the mice stuff maybe it, it plays into this later on. But we're not even sure about that. So here's the thing. It's true that this passage in a vacuum is about the supremacy of the one true God over against Dagon. But for us who only believe in the one true God, for the most part, I'm talking to Christians here, for everyone here, even if you're not a Christian, I'm pretty sure you don't believe in Dagon. For the most part, we might erroneously view this as a merely heartwarming, with an M, story, as opposed to a heart warning with an N. Because what's the contrast here? Dagon versus Yahweh. We believe in Yahweh, we don't believe in Dagon. But what's the difference? Dagon needs to get picked up off the ground. Yahweh knocks down the statue of Dagon before his ark, repositions him, and cuts off his hands and head without human help. And this is in Dagon's home court. Specifically, what we see here is that Yahweh doesn't need Israel's help. He doesn't need the help of his followers. And this is what I mean by heartwarming versus heartwarning. This isn't one of those, yeah, I told you my dad was stronger than your dad kind of things. It's not about just feeling good that we made the right choice, that we had the better God take that Philistines. This is a warning to people who would view God, the one true God, the wrong way. This is a warning to us as Christians to stop viewing the God that we worship like the pagans view their gods because what just happened last chapter, we talked about this, superstition. They viewed the ark as a rabbit foot. They could just bring out God's power to help them win a battle. They thought they lost because they didn't bring the ark the first time as if God couldn't do anything unless they carried his box to the center of the battlefield. God allows them to lose to the Philistines to teach them not to view him this way. And then he dominates the Dagon, uh, the God, uh, the Philistine God Dagon, and Dagon's own house just to show that it was never a question of power. Okay, let me put it this way. I remember years ago um, when I was kind of like in high school or whatever, um, we would sing this song with the youth. You know, we would get pumped up. Someone would bring out an electric guitar, uh, which was crazy, right? We would do that. Um, but we would sing this song, and I don't even remember all the lyrics, but there was this line about being God's hand, hands and God's feet. Okay, we're going to go out there, right? Like, God needs us to go out there and change the world. Like, the feet got to get moving, right? And the hands got to get serving. And we would sing about this, and people would go crazy and get pumped. And then we would hear these messages about how, you know, like, you know why the world is so messed up today? It's because God's hands aren't doing anything. We're just so lazy. God's feet are just disobedient. God wants to do all these powerful things in the world, but he can't do it if you're just sitting there, if you're just being lazy. A lot of people were guilted into doing stuff for God because they were told that if they don't, then God can't accomplish his, his purposes in this world. Now, before you send me an email, um, if you want to send it to me, it's eric at zoedallas.com, thanks. Um, but before you send me an email... There's some truth to this. Okay, I'm not saying that there's not. The church is the body of Christ. 
right? You know, Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, and we are called to be used by God. But understand this, okay? If the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 5 means anything, understand and know this and never forget it, that God doesn't need people. Okay, God doesn't need people. I'll make it personal to me. God doesn't need me. If I died, I think Zoe Church would go the same. Maybe it would die too, but God doesn't need Zoe either. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need anyone. And sometimes I think, you know, deep down inside, we believe that God does need us. And that's why I say it. Even that God is needy. God always wants to like hang out with me. He wants me to like talk to him and listen to him. God wants me to do this stuff for him. And I know that he has a lot of needs, but I'm busy too. I think sometimes deep down inside, we believe we're doing God a favor when we show up for him. Okay, like I haven't been around at church for a while, but I really got to get back to it because it's a good thing to do. We feel like, okay, God is super happy because we made time for him in our schedules. God doesn't need us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't show up. I'm not saying don't serve. I'm not saying don't pray or don't read the Bible. What I'm saying is, what I'm asking is, do we have this attitude? Do we have this perspective that maybe God requires my attendance or my resources? And I preach to myself, for sure, because sometimes my heart is so, um, for lack of a... Like, oh man, ministry is kind of hard. There's certain things in ministry I don't like as much. I mean, at the end of the day, God doesn't need me to be a pastor. See, God isn't needy. He's not begging you for his glory when he commands you to glorify him. He's not begging you for honor or praises. He wants you to. He calls you to. He invites you to even. But he's not begging. And if we don't, Worship him. You've got to understand that even the rocks will cry out. God can get his worship any way that he wants. See, we're not doing God a favor. God's doing us a favor. God doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your money. You don't need to give him tithes, and he's not going to go bankrupt if you don't. God doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your presence. He doesn't need your gifts. He wants those things, but he doesn't need it. And he doesn't need you. You thought last week was crazy? Remember last week where it was so heavy, I wanted to just close in prayer in the middle? I'm just continuing it right here. But he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. So how's that for a first point? Let's move on. Second point. Don't worry, it gets a little heavier. Second point, the presence. The power of God is established in the house of Dagon in the land of the Philistines. Now we see the consequences of his presence. There was another song that came to mind this week when I was writing this sermon that we used to sing back in the day. And I don't remember too much about this song either because I haven't sang it in a long time. But there was this line I remember distinctly where we were supposed to call out, fire fall down on us. Okay? And, uh, okay, I'm not hating on this song. Okay, the reference for that song is from Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church at Pentecost and tongues of fire come down. That was really what they were trying to say. Tongues of fire, right? It's like inviting the presence of God. When you're saying fire fall down in this way, it kind of scared me, to be honest. Everyone's singing out loud and I'm kind of like moving away from these people just in case God actually does send fire. 
You know, because that kind of language in the Bible is like Sodom and Gomorrah, dude. It's when God sent judgment. I kept thinking of Hebrews 12, how our God is a consuming fire. Not like a tickling fire, okay? A consuming fire. Hebrews 10, too, says, uh, 10.31, to T-O-O, but 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I remember, I can even see it in my mind. Maybe I'm just making it up in my imagination. But I can remember we would sing this, and people are, like, raising their hands, and they're like, fire, fall down, like, super loud. And I'm kind of, like, praying like God, but you know what kind of fire, right? Like we're saying, please don't, actually. So here's a question for you, for us. Is the presence of God a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? Because what I've seen in church is we just automatically assume that the presence of God is what we should be seeking after. Okay, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but what do you think? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, I just felt the presence of God in that church. Meaning it was a good thing, right? I just felt the presence of God during my quiet time or up in the mountains. Usually when I've heard people say it, they don't mean, and I was terrified and I thought that I was going to die. But that's what we see here when the presence of God manifests in the country of the Philistines. It starts in the house of Dagon. Dagon's head and hands, verse 5, are on the threshold. And the text tells us that that's why they never walk on the threshold to this day, because to them, the threshold became sacred because Dagon had touched it. Okay, so they didn't learn the right lesson, obviously. You would think that after this happened twice, that they would think, wow, maybe Dagon is not, at least not the most powerful God. Or maybe they wouldn't become believers in the one true God, but maybe we should look into this Yahweh a little bit. But they don't. They double down. They say, well, the head touched the threshold. Now it is sacred. And then they keep living. And this is what happens in verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, a quick word on that phrase, his hand was heavy. The word for heavy here in Hebrew is the word kavod. Does it ring a bell at all? Okay, there was this guy who used to come to Zoe named Eric. He was a pastor. And he preached on this not that long ago during the Christmas. He's on sabbatical, I'm just kidding. Um, but he relaxed. Okay, he's coming back. Lord willing, me and James are praying every day. Um, but he was teaching on this during our Advent series when he talked about the glory of Christmas. Kavod, it means heavy literally in Hebrew, okay? But it's also the Hebrew word for glory. Because to the Hebrew people, glory was heavy. Meaning it wasn't a light thing, it wasn't a transient thing, it was a weighty, heavy thing. And what did Eli's daughter-in-law say when she died giving birth to Ichabod? She said, the glory, the kavod, has departed from Israel. So now we see where it went, so to speak. His presence manifested, his glorious presence is now manifesting among the Philistines where the ark is. And we, we read the text, we know that it's not a warm, fuzzy feeling at all. It's terrifying. Okay, this isn't, you know, pull me a little closer, take me a little deeper. This is, get me away from this. The people of Ashdod developed these tumors. Now, let's talk about that real quick, because I'm not sure we have, like, the right thing in mind, and I'm not sure anyone even knows what the right thing is in studying it, because tumors here, the, the word in Hebrew, it's a descriptive term. Right? That's what it looked like. Okay, so maybe it was cancer. Maybe there were just a bunch of uh, benign tumors that were just like appearing to freak them out. There's some linguistic evidence that this might be hemorrhoids, 
Okay, and if you don't know what that is, ask your parents. Um, but if it's, if it's hemorrhoids, it's not just a painful thing, which it is, but most likely it was something like dysentery, okay, some type of like bowel disease. Something was afflicting them because we know people were dying. And then some people argue that it, it was probably bubonic plague. Okay, and the reason why they think that is because of the mice. They think maybe uh, it was rats, actually. And, and actually, the connection between plague and rats has been known for millennia. But is that the case? I don't know. We don't know, right? Plague makes you swell up in your body in different weird ways. But we don't know. All we know is that it was bad and it was terrifying. Like, people's bodies are getting messed up. People are dying. And remember, the Philistines, they have these advanced weapons. They're super strong. But this is a battle they can't understand or hope to win. It's internal. So they gather the lords of the Philistines. They gather a meeting. And Gath volunteers to take the ark. So they say, okay, Ashdod, okay, we'll tag team. We'll take it. Now, you know Gath because the most famous Philistine of all time is from Gath. Right? Goliath of Gath. Now, if you do kind of the timeline, Goliath might have been a kid at this point. We don't know. But what we can kind of surmise is that the Gath people were warriors. Maybe they weren't all giants. But you remember Goliath's, you know, Philistine attitude of like, who cares who God is and we're just going to dominate you and feed you to the birds of the air. I mean, that's kind of the picture that we have of the city. So it's a tough city. We'll take the ark. We got it. They bring the ark to Gath. Same thing happens. The presence of God is heavy. It's too heavy. And the people of Gath start freaking out too. Everyone is developing tumors. So they try to ship it off to Ekron. And the people of Ekron are like, they see it coming like in the little car. They're like, no, dude. Okay, we saw what happened. You're trying to kill us? This is a horror. This, this is like a horror movie. Verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. And the Philistines are getting wrecked. Meanwhile, in Israel, and we don't know exactly what's going on, but you can imagine Israel is wondering what's going on. How, like, how come, okay, we just lost terribly. The ark is gone. How come they don't just come in and, and invade, right, and take over? They're probably watching the horizon with dread. Like the Philistine army is just going to show up anytime now. We're done. We're going to be slaves. Every day, you know, they're kind of like looking and they kind of open their eyes. Nothing's happening because the Philistines are getting wrecked. They don't know it, but it's because the Philistines had their hands full with the presence of Yahweh. Now, chapter 6 tells us uh, in verse 1 that the ark was in Philistia seven months. Now, who knows how many people died? We know people were suffering basically this whole time. All we know is that just seven months of the presence of God was all they could take before they decide to send it back. Their symbol of victory. Just send it back. So the lords of the Philistines called the priests and the diviners. They asked, what should we do? Because they recognize that they can't just return the ark by itself. They know God requires something. So what is the solution? Verse 4, golden tumors and golden mice. Again, pretty self-explanatory. Moving on. No, it's really weird. It's very strange. One of the strangest things. And we don't really know what they were thinking. Okay, we kind of get their, their reasoning and how they kind of got to we need something. Okay, they're like, okay, there are five lords, five cities. God has been apparently afflicting all of them, so let's have an offering for each. The tumors, probably because they have tumors. The mice, grain god, maybe. Maybe the mice are like messing up the fields. Maybe it is plague. But verse 3, 
They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a what? A guilt offering. Verse 4, and they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? So we don't know exactly why these things, but we know what their thought process is in terms of what it meant. We got to give him a guilt offering. See, they don't know anything about the Israelite God, really. They've heard some stories about Egypt, but they're not dummies. They recognize that they have somehow offended this God, that this God is afflicting them. They know that their guilt remains in his presence, so they want to appease him and they want to send him away so that there is distance. See, it's telling what they say in verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Learn from Pharaoh's mistakes. Sure, they get the details of the offering wrong, or at least weird, but they get generally what needs to happen. This God is angry. We cannot hope to stand against him. Let's offer a costly offering of gold. Let's humble ourselves. Let's not be like the Egyptians who kept getting afflicted over and over and over. Let's give him glory. Let's send the ark away because we can't handle it. See, it's interesting today. It's interesting that even though maybe organized religion has kind of dropped off in America, people are still into spirituality, right? You see like people into astrology and, and into like mysticism and kind of like Eastern things. And then even like in certain areas of America, like Texas or in the Bible Belt, people are really into like this idea of God, even if they're not really following Jesus. They like, you know, this idea of God, you know, blessing our country or being over our home. But honestly, if you showed someone, if this was your first kind of exposure to God, the God of the Bible, because someone was like, tell me about Christianity. I'm like, oh, dude, check out 1 Samuel chapter 6. What do you think people would think about God? Oh, man, I just can't wait to run into his arms. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. I mean, I, I even know for me, like I pray you know, that God would be with me, that God would be with my kids, that his hand would be upon us or something like that. And studying the, this week, I was like, God, I just pray for your grace and your mercy. We don't want God's hand to be heavy upon us like this. I mean, who wants tumors? I mean, that's why we don't smoke, right? Imagine how the pitch for Christianity would be. You know, you say like, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. And then in that little like writing on the bottom, you say, disclaimer, Christianity might cause cancer, you know? And this leads to the third point, the problem. Because there is a problem. I mean, you should be thinking about this, okay? So we are worshiping God. We're in the church of God. The presence of God is here. In a sense, God is actually everywhere. He is omnipresent. So what does that actually mean for us? The problem. There's a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner who years ago uh, became somewhat famous for writing a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You might have heard about this book. um, But basically, he rejected the notion that God was holy and righteous and reserved wrath for sinners. So we've got to get rid of like the guilt that's in religion. He was Jewish. He wasn't Christian. Um, but he would look to the Old Testament. And for example, uh, he, he said about Adam and Eve and the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, he said a God who punished people so severely for breaking one arbitrary rule was not a God I wanted to believe in. 
He's like, I don't want to believe in that. And I'm sure if he looked at this, he'd be like, a God who, when his ark comes into your presence, causes tumors, I'm pretty sure I don't want to believe in that either. And while we might say, okay, it doesn't matter what this random guy thinks, let's be real, right? Everything that we've covered so far is difficult, objectively, to take in. Even going back to last week, if God is for you, if, or even what I said in the first point, God doesn't need you. Or in the second point, the presence of God is a terrifying, horrific thing, or it can be. Now, we might understand that this is what the text is getting at, but this isn't something that really, you know, makes us feel good about God. Now, you might say that might not even be the point. But what are we supposed to do with this when we set it up against how Christians are always talking about the gospel, the good news, or God's love? The Philistines, they come up with this plan to send the ark back to Israel. They get a brand new cart. They get two milk cows that are untrained, and they yoke them up to the cart, and then they take their calves, their babies, away from them. So this is all a test, okay? The Philistines are trying to see if this is just a coincidence. Crazy coincidence if it was, but they want to see what God is going to do because these cows, they're untrained. They're not used to walking with a yoke. You take their babies away, so they're going to want to follow their babies. So they're like, if God, if Yahweh is really behind this, that he will take the ark back to Israel with these cows. So that's what they do. They load up the cart with the ark and the golden tumors and the mice, and they follow behind it at a distance. It's kind of silly when you think about it. The five lords are kind of following behind, like looking to see what's going on. And the cows take the ark directly to Beth Shemesh. And the people of Israel who have been watching the horizon with dread all these months, they look out, they see the ark coming back by itself with these cows pulling it, and they stop right in the field of Joshua. And when the people see the ark, they're pumped, right? They're rejoicing. The glory is back, baby, right? And we have these cows now. So we're going to kill these cows. We're going to offer burnt offerings right here on the wood that the cart is made of. And we just have this big rock right here. Let's just set that up. But then what happens? Verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. See, maybe part of us part of our minds, we were kind of going to this place where it's like, well, it's because they're the Philistines, right? They're not God's people. They're pagans. They're evil. But then the people of Israel have the exact same, may not exact, but they have a terrifying, horrific experience with the ark. And if you look at the text, it doesn't say, and the box has some magical powers that cause something to happen. It says, and he, God, struck them. Now, commentators state that it was more like they looked into the ark. It wasn't just like they were like far away and kind of gazed at it or happened to glimpse it. it was, they were trying to look inside. But 70 men die. Their joy quickly turns to mourning. And you might be tempted to think, again, the Philistines were the enemies. But the people of God experienced this. I mean, haven't they learned their lesson already? It's been seven months They've been brought low. They're worshiping him, aren't they? They are offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. What's the deal? The deal is the problem still remains. What is the problem? What is the problem? Verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? The problem, they, they understand, they ask the right question. The problem is that God is holy and we are sinners. He is infinitely above us. 
He is God. And we are not only lowly creatures whom He doesn't need, but we are fallen creatures who have transgressed against Him. And if I haven't lost you already with the tumors and golden mice and telling you that God doesn't need you and a general heavy message, how's this? God is actually against you, naturally. And against me. Against every single person, Gentile or Jewish, Philistine or Israelite. God is against everyone who has ever done anything wrong. If you've lied you've cheated, if you've lusted, if you've been greedy or gossiped, you've broken God's holy standard. Not to mention if you've like murdered someone or did something crazy. And because we've broken God's holy standard, we are guilty before Him. And just like when you go into a dark room, you know, and you flip on the light switch, and the darkness is obliterated by the light, God's holiness is so obliterating that us as sinful human beings, we can't stand in His presence. Now, people like Harold Kushner struggle with this. And I think that it is a hard thing, to be honest. People want to reject it. And that's where I say, even though it is hard, what does the text say? What does the Bible say? Did Dagon fall on his own or not? Did the Philistines get afflicted by having the ark in their country or not? Did the men of Beth Shemesh mourn over the death of 70 of their own because they couldn't stand before this holy God or not? If this is true, then there you go. But, and give me just a few more minutes, we're not quite done yet, but almost... But the text isn't done. See, we know God must be doing something through this. Okay, He is. We've said it. The clues are all over 1 Samuel. Why would He raise up Samuel in the place of Eli unless He was going to do something? Why would He raise up this faithful prophet to speak the Word of God to these people if He wasn't going to do something? Why would He afflict the Philistines, Israel's powerful army that is oppressing them, or enemy that is oppressing them, unless he was going to do something. And why would he orchestrate all of these things so that the ark would be brought back without war, without bloodshed? God wanted his presence to visibly be manifest again in Israel. Obviously, he hasn't given up on them. So what is he doing? Why did he allow them to lose and to suffer and even these 70 men to die when they looked into the ark. Why did he allow them to go through all of this? In a word, because he wanted to be with them. To humble them. And that's not wrath, that's mercy. That's not malice, that's grace. That's not hate, that's actually love. Because the Israelites thought they could approach this dangerous God on the merit of who they were. Because they had the box, because they were the chosen sons of Abraham. But the armor of pedigree, the armor of super, superstition is flimsy and doesn't protect. So how does God prepare them? He brings them low. He humbles them because a broken and contrite heart, what? God will never despise. We wear our achievements. We wear our gifts. We think because we raised our hand one time in church when we were kids. We think because our parents were faithful. My dad was a pastor. 
We think because we read through the entire Bible or because we're reformed in our theology. We think all these things will protect us from a holy God. But if we are sinners, nothing will except for one thing. And that one thing can only be taken hold of by the poor in spirit. The people of Beth Shemesh send the ark away. They don't quite get it yet. They ask the first right question. They ask the second right question. They say, send it away, and they do. And they send it to Kiriath-Jerim. And you know what's interesting about Kiriath-Jerim? I know you guys love and know all about Kiriath-Jerim. But what's interesting about Kiriath-Jerim is that it's not an Israelite city. Did you know that? It's, if you read about it in Joshua chapter 9, it was one of the Gibeonite cities. The Gibeonites were these Canaanites who were scared of Israel and they pretended that they were from far away so that Israel wouldn't destroy them. And Joshua spared them. And they lived among the people of Israel to that day. They send the ark to Kiriath-Jerim and the men there consecrated Eleazar to watch over it and it remained there. And guess what? What doesn't happen? The people don't die. Now, we're going to see a little bit more about what happens in the hearts of the people of Israel next week. But I want to read to you verse 2, the final verse. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Short and sweet, we don't know the details, but we know the gist. The ark remains there 20 years, and over those 20 years, something changes in Israel. They start lamenting, but not lamenting death, not lamenting the presence of the Lord. What does it say? They start lamenting after the Lord. And it's kind of an awkward translation in the English, but basically what's going on is they are finally broken and contrite before him. They approach him. They go after him in humility. So 20 years. And this is why I think nothing bad happened in Kiriath Jerim because it was ground zero. This is where contrition started before it spread throughout the entire land of Israel in a non-Israelite city because it's not about the blood that flows through your veins. It's about the heart. And maybe not the heart that pumps it, but your spiritual heart. And from now on, things are going to be different. After all of this, from now on, Samuel, who is half of the equation, is going to speak the word of God faithfully. And from now on, the other half, the people are finally ready to listen and to hear, to trust. They're ready now to obey. And that's what we're going to see next week is how the whole world can change when your heart does. So we'll close here. We'll close here. Sometimes people fear Jesus every once in a while. And that was a good thing. And there's one story in particular that came to mind when I was going through 1 Samuel from Luke chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But this is early on in the story of Jesus' ministry, way before the cross, way before the transfiguration, way before on this rock I will build my church. But it has to do with the rock. It has to do with Peter. Peter brought Jesus onto his boat. And at this point, compared to later, Peter, Peter barely knew Jesus. Okay, he knew him maybe a little bit, but he barely knew him. Jesus is teaching on the shores of Galilee, and people are crowding around him. And it's so crazy that he gets into Peter's boat, and he kind of goes into the water a little bit, and he teaches. 
a, a few feet away from the shore, just so people can't be all pressing up against him. And when he's done, he tells Peter to put his nets out to fish. And Peter is like, all right, I don't really want to, because Peter's, Peter's a professional fisherman. He knows that now is not the right time to fish. We're not going to catch anything. This is a waste of energy. But Jesus is insistent. He knows Jesus is a rabbi. He's a great teacher. He's a carpenter. He knows his wood. But he's like, this guy doesn't know fishing. Okay, wasting my time. But he's like, but, you know, I respect him, so I'll do it. He says, at your word, I will let down the nets. He does, and you know the story. It's like a billion fish in there. Okay, all the fishermen in here are like, hey, man, this is cool. Actually, the joy is in the catching, right? It's like not fun when it's a miracle. But anyway, it's a million fish. The nets are breaking. And Peter knows that this isn't just like, oh, the catch of a lifetime. He knows that something freaky and supernatural just happened. He's scared. Peter doesn't rejoice. Instead, he falls down on his face. And this is what he says. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And that's it. He knows that he's in the presence of the holy. He doesn't know everything yet. He barely knows Jesus. But he knows that in the presence of the holy, he cannot stand. He knows that he can't handle it. He knows that he is the problem. He knows that Jesus in him is the holy God of heaven and earth. And he is broken and contrite before him. I don't deserve to be in your presence. But then what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? This consuming fire made flesh. This God of holiness, this dangerous God incarnate, what did he say? He said, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. From now on, you're coming with me. From now on, I'm going to use you. Not because I need you. Not because you're worthy. But because I want to. Because of grace. See, the God who terrifies is the same God who can take away our fear. The God of wrath is the same God of mercy. The God who is so holy we can't even approach his presence is the God of all grace. So fall down before him, be humble. And the crazy thing is, he will lift you up.